Well, good morning. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's good to see you guys this morning. It's good to be with you. Um, if you don't know me, I'm, my name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here at Soma Culver City. Uh, and it's a pleasure and a privilege anytime I get to share with you guys um, and read the scriptures together and um, open up what God is, is speaking to us. So um, as we continue um, this series this morning in the Minor Prophets, we're calling this series God Speaks Through the Prophets um, with the implication that as we go through these books that can sometimes seem archaic or from a bygone era, uh, it's actually God's words to us today, that the people then are not very different from the people now, and that God's word to them has implications for how we live today. And so as we get started this morning, in some ways we're picking up directly where we left off last week, which is unusual in the Minor Prophets. A lot of times they jump around chronologically, but we have a unique situation in where we we were in Nahum last week, where Brad um, talked to us about how God had pronounced judgment over the Assyrian Empire and that the book was all about God's wrath towards injustice. And he showed us that that was actually good news because what's the alternative? The alternative would be living in a world where God doesn't care about your pain. God doesn't care about the injustice that's perpetrated everywhere around us. But the good news is God actually does care and that the arc of history is long and bends towards justice as as we talked about. And so today we pick up following the crumbling of the Syrian Empire where the Syrian Empire where the walls of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, have literally been broken down exactly as the prophet predicted would happen. And so now we're in the aftermath of that. Um, our story in some ways is the next chapter in in the history of the world, or in history of this part of the world. And so Nineveh has been overthrown by the Babylonians, which is the next people that are rising up, the Neo-Babylonians, which scripture calls the Chaldeans. And um, under the king, under the rule of King Nabopolassar, they, the, the uh, Assyrian Empire has completely crumbled and is no more. And so God's judgment has been carried out. So we get to see a book later that we're in a new reality where God indeed has fulfilled his promises. And so whereas Nahum focused on God's wrath against evil and just the reality of that, Habakkuk sort of gets down into the daily flow of our lives. Um, And he he kind of asks the question through the struggle and through this dialogue that he has with God, how do we live in a reality, in the reality of a world that has this about it, this injustice, this evil, this darkness that seems so prevalent sometimes that it, it threatens to overwhelm us? Because the sad reality is, though the Assyrians have been overthrown, has evil been removed? Has it been done away with completely? I think we can all say, no, there's, we're still living in a lot of that same reality. And so God has a word for us now um, that, uh, that tells us how we live in light of that. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, I just thank you for um, this time this morning to open up your word. Um, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would reveal in us um, what it is you have for us this morning, that you um, would show us that we are, in some ways, very um, 
very similar to the people in our story and very similar to the struggles that they're going through and um, the ways that we cry out to you and the ways um, that we go about our days in a world that sometimes doesn't make sense and and sometimes um, feels overwhelming. So I pray that you would minister our hearts this morning. I pray that you would be um, our shepherd and our counselor and that you would draw us to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. So uh, Habakkuk begins as a cry out to God. Uh, If you guys want to open your Bibles, if you have them, I'll give you a second to do that. So as I was saying, it's kind of interesting that the book is framed as a, a conversation with God. So the, the first, the first uh, chapter begins with uh, Habakkuk's first cry to God. And it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So he's looking out at even the nation of Judah itself, which is you know, God's people, the southern kingdom of Israel. He's looking at, out at how people treat each other and saying, how, how have you let our people get to this place where we... Where we it doesn't even, people don't even care that... that all this injustice is happening and that people being, are being treated like animals. Do you even care that this is happening? Destruction and violence is everywhere. And even the people who are in charge of us, who are supposed to be taking care of us, are supposed to be enforcing the law, they're actually perverting justice and turning the victims into the accused. And you, you guys might find yourselves resonating with that a little bit, looking out at our world today. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with the current state of things. Even over the last few weeks as I've been preparing, there have been two mass shootings, which is absurd that in as many weeks there would be two of these events happening and what used to happen every three to four to five years. We've had a flood of sexual assaults coming out in the public sphere um, that have the list just keeps growing. As I was preparing my notes, I would have one specific example, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then it was too many to count, which is, it's just mind-boggling. And we have outright bigotry, hatred, and oppression that has now been sanctioned as a legitimate and valid philosophy, and has actually been seen as politically useful to some people. See, and then we have countless injustices that happen every day, that have always been happening every day that no one even hears about because of the roar of the news cycle and everything else that's going on. So even if you're able to kind of navigate the world and not feel burdened down by all these things, as, as some of us are, you might find yourself sort of walking in this existential dread. I was having a conversation with a friend the other night, and I thought that perfectly encapsulated sort of this... I don't know, this air that we we're breathing and this, you know, this culture that we're walking in, maybe in terms of for the last year or so. Um, and I think that that's sort of coloring, at least for me, a lot of how I see the world. Suddenly things that were certain seem a little bit less certain. Certainly things that I always thought I could trust about how the world would work don't necessarily seem trustworthy. 
And so that's the reality that I think all of us are living in. And this morning, I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about the two ways that you can respond to this new reality or this old reality as we're seeing in our chapter, um, in our book from today. But first, I want to get a clear understanding of what exactly was happening in Habakkuk's day. So in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, there's no, re- no regard for the law whatsoever. Um, like we were saying, there, there's violence and destruction everywhere, corrupt, corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk cries out, begging God for revival. And some scholars think that he was looking back to his time as a boy when he grew up. And one of the king, there was a long line of kings that were put in place over Judah by the Assyrians and by the Egyptians and different governments that sort of traded off having, having dominion or rule over the, the Judeans. And one of those kings, Josiah, actually turned, pe- turned the people's hearts back towards God, or rather God turned the people's hearts back to him through the reign of King Josiah. So it's likely, it's likely that he was actually thinking, remember that time when I was a boy and people seemed to care about how they treated each other. People seemed to care that people were suffering. And so they did something about it. He's like, maybe if I cry out to God, that will change. Maybe if I cry out to God, he'll hear my cry and he'll actually enter into the situation and turn the people's hearts back to him. And God's answer is a little unexpected. It's not quite what Habakkuk may have been hoping for. He says, Look among the nations and see. This is still in chapter 1, by the way. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. We can hear that and be like, oh, that sounds like some good news is coming. Like, God's about to tell us about some unbelievable work that he's going to do. He says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So what he says here is, I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge the wickedness of Judah and to, cha- uh, and to, to chasten them to actually judge the sin that's been, being perpetrated against my people, by my people, against my people. See, after defeating the, Assy- the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians sort of just rose up and put on the same pants. And were like, well, we'll just keep that, keep that trend going. That was working out pretty well, just oppressing people with violence and um, having complete control over the, the nations. We'll just keep that going and maybe even sweeten it a little bit, maybe even get the, the Babylonians actually were even more brutal than the Assyrians. So the prophet Jeremiah describes this period in Israel's history. He talks about the Babylonian Empire because it wasn't like a they wiped, they wiped out Judah and kept going. It was just a constant slow burn daily. And he calls it, uh, he, he says that the Babylonians, he describes it as them gnawing on Israel's bones. That gives you a picture for what it was like living in this time. And so, and the Babylonians will eventually destroy Jerusalem. So it's kind of like a slow burn up to that point of a really um, drastic um, debasing of Israel. So I don't know if you guys can imagine what that would be like to be to feel oppressed by a government that was over you that you had no say in that you couldn't control. 
Um, and I think, understandably, Habakkuk's reaction is dire. He says to God, you who are, in verse 13, you who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying, how does championing people who are worse than the people I was complaining about before, how does using them to, to judge us and to basically bring your, your ways about, how does that actually solve any problem? If, if I cried out to you for violence, you're using the violence of these people to work, to teach us something? To, how does that solve the problem? That their violence is far worse than ours. And God answers him again. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It, chastens, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. God says, write down this promise that I am acting in my appointed timing. Hang it up in the city for all to see. As they run by, this should be news that as they read it, they'll get excited about and it will actually lift their burdens. Babylon's, Babylon's judgment is sure. Despite this pain you're living in for a little while, that, that I am working in you to remove and to chasten your sin so that, to turn you back towards me, despite what's happening in a little while, they will ultimately be judged and you will be delivered and you can hope in that. You can hope in me. So then, this then leads us into talking about the first way to live in a world where the reality is Injustice, oppression, darkness. He calls it the puffed up soul. So, I don't know, for, for you guys, that puts an image in my mind. If you remember those, the big blow up games and stuff that you have at kids' birthdays parties and stuff, and they have the air pump that's pumping into them constantly. And if you turn that thing off, what happens? They deflate, right? There's nothing. There's no structure in there. There's nothing rigid that actually supports and keep, to keep it upright. And so that's kind of the imagery of the puffed up soul. There are these descriptions that are given about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the, now the king over the Babylonian Empire, who's perpetrating all of this, um, this evil against the people of Judah. And the Babylonians are kind of the poster children for the puffed up soul. And so here are some of the descriptions that Habakkuk has for, for what the, these men are like. He calls them guilty men whose might is their own God. So they worship their own power and ability over everything else. That's what drives them forward. That's what gets them out of bed in the morning. That's how they know that they'll be victorious ultimately and that they'll be prospered is, the, is their own power and ability. Um, chapter 2, verse 5 says, An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Maybe you guys resonate with this a little bit. Enough is never enough. He's constantly gathering more. He's like, maybe if I have that, that nation under my stronghold, then, then the empire will be complete. But evidently, that's not the case. And he continues um, going um, to all the peoples of the earth and collecting them all, basically, in his collection and in his own tyranny of, uh, 
of, uh, of rule. And so he, uh, he outlines the charges, Habakkuk outlines the charges against the puffed up soul um, poetically in what is called five woes, which is a common, uh, a common device, a common poetic form in the prophets, um, where they use this beautiful language to describe where exactly things have gone wrong. And so that's what happens here, and we have five of them. And in some ways, um, as you listen, you might hear sort of a trajectory where some of them kind of run together and become one thought entirely. Um, So the first one is greed. He says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. So this has to deal with unjust lending and investing practices that amount to extortion and theft, where you basically oppress the poor by saying, uh, it's kind of like those payday lending scams where you're like, well, if you, if you come to me, I'll give you your paycheck. And then for the low, low price of 30% interest, um, I'll, I'll, I'll collect my payment at the end, you know, whenever you get paid. Or if you don't, I'll just keep whatever collateral you gave me. Or actually, I know that you're not going to be able to pay, so I'll just keep the collateral and we can just forego the whole arrangement and I'll just sort of take your possessions over time, little by little. And the second one is unjust gain. He says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. So this is the idea of using people to build up your estate. So now people are, um, are objects that you would use to, what can I take from you to get what I want? So the next is violent abuse. He says, woe to him who built a town with blood and found a city on iniquity. So this takes that concept to even, fur- even further, where you're, in- you're actually resorting to violence to enrich yourself. You're saying, what, my, what I need is so much more important than anything else in the world that I can actually oppress you. I can actually kill you if it means I get what you have. And so that's what's happening here. And the, next, the fourth one is sexual abuse, which is very prevalent for us right now. He says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So the idea here is that people have almost in full to full completion have become an object for your enjoyment and for your needs. They've been removed of any humanity and they now exist for whatever purpose you see fit. And the final one is idolatry. And not in the way that we usually talk about idolatry, um, of what are you putting in the place of God? This is this is there's this is undergirding that, but this is a specific system the Babylonians have devised, and it's the system of spiritism and sorcery and divination, which basically amounts to, in their culture, I believe that if I go to the temple, I do this, I perform this rite, I say this incantation to this idol, and now I will be victorious in battle. So it's this idea that we're going, we're, we're taking what we did, just did to people who are made in God's image, and now we're doing it to who we believe God is himself. We're saying, God, uh, you're here to make and to do what I need, and so I'm going to perform these rites, do these acts, so that I get what I need from you. I don't actually care who you are. I don't even really need to know who you are, but I need, I need what, what I need from you in order to, to meet my to meet my own ends. And so that's the reality of the idolatry that's, that's happening in this culture. 
And you might hear that laundry list of evil and say, that's exactly the problem with these people around us in the world that are doing these terrible things all the time. They sound exactly like the Babylonians. Like, I, I totally see that, that parallel that, you know, that, that's in the, in the scriptures. But that's, it's not quite that simple. Because it would be nice if it was just this laundry list of things that are the oppressions that we're struggling under. But each woe has some interesting supporting arguments and some interesting um, implications that make it a little less black and white for us. See, for greed, it goes on, Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake, who will make you tremble? And you guys may resonate with this. I know I do, but actually, I've you know I've made some financial mistakes in my past. Like that, that could be a real worry of mine. That what what would happen if those financial mistakes, maybe even ones that involved taking advantage of someone else, if that's um, part of your story, what would happen if that caught up to me? And so that's what you know. That's what's happening. That's basically what he's saying. Um, in reference to greed. The next one is unjust gain. It says, The motivation for unjust gain is to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You'd probably say, I'd like to have financial security. That sounds great. I'd like to be safe from harm, to not have to worry about what's going to happen to my life that might upset my stability of my family. Um, Why is that such a bad thing? And for violent abuse, you might say, aha, I'm not violent at all. I have not a violent bone in my body. Verse 13 says, The peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. Basically, they're trying to get something that doesn't actually hold any value, which is leading them to do anything it takes to get that. Have you guys ever wearied yourself for nothing? for something that didn't actually have the power to profit or deliver you or to give you fullness of life? I know I have. Maybe I wouldn't categorize that as violence, but the prophet's saying that's, that's in the same trajectory. In sexual abuse, have you ever reduced someone in your life to what they can do for you? Coworker, spouse, their only value is in how they make your life easier or how they give you what you want. So ultimately, that's the same root as what we're seeing in our culture today. And then idolatry. Do you then manipulate people, situations, even God, to get your desired outcome? Saying, God, if you give me this, then I'll do that. Controlling others, saying, I really need to make this happen, so if I can just make sure they don't know that this is what I'm really doing behind the scenes then I'll be able to get mine. See, it's, it's a lot simpler than we make it sometimes, this idea of evil, at least in, for the, the people in Habakkuk's time. It's ultimately about getting what you want. Getting what you want and what you will do to get what you want. And this is kind of an interesting idea because a lot of people who talk about what makes for a good story is that the first thing you need is a character who wants something. And then the rest of the story is about what they will do to get it, 
what conflict that causes and what resolution happens as a way out of that. And I think that's a form of our stories because it's a form of our lives. We're all looking for what we want and then the rest of our life is about what we'll do to get it. And the only difference between us and the Judeans and the Babylonians is where we draw that line. What we call sexual abuse, what we call violent abuse. Other than that, the heart is the same. We have the same proclivity. See, Judah has already gone down this road. Habakkuk's initial cry is not because of the Babylonians. He doesn't even mention them. It's because of the Judeans. It's because the people, his own nation, are treating each other with such contempt and violence and hate just to get whatever it is they need. See, they basically looked out at their dark, uncertain, fearful world run by the Assyrians, now the Babylonians, and chosen to do whatever it takes, relying on themselves, saying, if I don't take care of my own needs, no one else is going to. So I guess I better just look after that and do whatever it takes to get there. See, God calls out these things. And Habakkuk's immediate reaction, this is the surprise sort of turn in the book where you think it's going one way, just talking about the evil out there. And then it sort of takes a turn when you see Habakkuk's response and he says, how could you let them swallow up men more righteous than them? And I think there you begin to see his heart in the beginning of this book. And though he already admitted that their justice is perverted, that they're not even carrying out justice. Now he's defending their righteousness and something doesn't quite add up. You can start to see this pathway emerge where there's a fearful reality or world we're living in. We react to that fear by how we live out our life to get whatever we need, to to get what we want, to pursue our own ends, sometimes making moral compromises in the process. And then we justify that reaction and say, no, 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 no. But see, it's because I needed to actually have enough money to live in L.A. Or, no, 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 no. It's, it's, I actually needed all of these things in order to be able to have enough time and enough bandwidth to do the thing God, God wants me to do. And so we, we start to justify like this. So I wanted to see for you guys, because we're in this exact same cultural stream where... We're at times fearful or just disenchanted or feeling oppressed ourselves. We react in that world and then we justify ourselves. So it's this pathway. And for me, it comes out, I wrote down like five or six examples. I'm not going to do them all because that would just be ridiculous and you would know how terrible of a person I am. So I'll just give you two. Just give you two. Um, the first, the most prevalent for me is my kids. So I don't know if you guys, ha- those of you who have kids, you're at home. We just moved, so we've been having a lot of home projects to do, a lot of things to get done. And at times, I become really anxious and fearful that this isn't going to get done. Even that's, even though that's not really related to the world outside of my home, somehow I'm still swimming in that that same water, and so I find myself reacting to the kids really harshly, as if they're the ones standing in the way of me getting what I want, 
and me getting this thing done that doesn't actually matter. Um, and then I justify. I'm like, well, that's not a big deal because remember I, we went on that daddy date a couple days ago, God, and I totally poured all of this love into Lucy's, you know, love bank account. If you guys know that language for you put you, you put in all of these deposits so that when you make mistakes or when you have to correct or do something that the kids don't like, they trust you. I don't know. It's this whole way of thinking about it, but. <laughs> You justify this, and you're like, you're like, so I'm sure she's not actually upset that I completely ignored her just then, or said, you know, spoke to her in a harsh tone that was actually directed at the project that I was frustrated about, but got redirected to her. And so that's one for me. The next one is money, also related to the house, which I'm like, I need to sort out this house situation. Apparently, <laughs> um, I'm fearful at times. Often when I'm not looking at anything that is actually true, but not when I'm looking at the actual numbers or what we actually planned, how it's going to work out, just when I'm thinking about the inevitabilities of, or the possibilities of how things could go off the rails, I start getting really anxious. I start thinking, we're going to have no money in our accounts, we're going to have to, I, I literally will start thinking, who could we move in with if we defaulted on our mortgage and we lost everything. Like, I'll actually do this in my brain, even though that's like nowhere close to the financial picture we're looking at. But I'll go there. And so I'll get really anxious and I'll get cheap or cheaper, if you know me. Um, and <laughs> I'll get really angry um, and about unneeded, unneeded expenses and all of a sudden a $5 Starbucks coffee is breaking our budget and somehow in my brain and I'll get I'll treat Robin harshly um, or I'll just treat myself harshly if I you know overspent or did something I shouldn't have done and then I justify it and I tell myself well I'm just being cautious I'm trying to be a good steward so I need to be serious about things if I'm going to be cautious and this is how we do do things and so I want to see for you guys what does that pathway look that look like for you? The with the thing, the reality in your world. It could be broader. It could be in the the broader world around you. It could be political. It could be um, about money. It could be about friends. Um, what what does that pathway look like? Where you react in some way to something that you're moved or afraid of, and then you justify yourself. If anyone's willing to share. It's almost like uh, you're trying to sweeten the pot and you're like, I know I hurt your feelings, so let me actually compromise in this way that looks like I'm loving you and give you something that you wouldn't, yeah. It's funny the things we do. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
it's really like rooted in like, well, I don't think God's going to change her. So I'm not even going to spend time like praying for her heart or like maybe speaking more graciously just because it's like God was going to like, you know, change her heart and heart or whatever. Who would have done it by now? Clearly, this is just a plan for the rest of our lives is to like have these tensions. It's like, I, I think a lot of times it's like I justify it with, well, like, if God wanted to fix it, he would fix it. Mm. So, like, I don't need to spend time praying or I don't need to spend mm. time seeking restoration myself because if God wanted to fix things, you know, like, and I think I, especially, like, with my blood family, that happens. Yeah. You know, I just, like, doubt. And then I just justify it with, like, well, like, you know, like, of course I want him to, but, like, he doesn't need me to ask for it. If he wanted to, he would do it. Right. Like, it becomes this distrust. The doubt leads to fatalism. We're like, God, it's it's up to you, so I don't even need to be involved anymore. Like, just, yeah. I think that's good. Philip? I think uh, at work, a lot of times, I um, can, thinking about unjust gain, um, you know, where do we draw the line? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we call unjust gain? Right. Um, for me, I think that there are choices that I make throughout the week um, that affects uh, my productivity that I know I can get away with, um, you know, whether I'm uh, using my time well or not. And uh, I'll sometimes think about, um, you know, I'll sometimes justify some of those choices, um, you know, not to use my time well, um, thinking about, you know, uh, I don't know, just making excuses about how much I have on my plate or how, um, you know, complicated my caseload is, things like that. And, um, uh, I'll, I'll see my my job and like the people that I work with, clients, just as this um, system that's here to pay my rent for me, you know, uh, uh, take care of my financial needs. And as long as I'm, you know, keeping you know my boss happy, and you know people aren't noticing any uh, uh, you know noticing any bad choices that I'm making, that it's all okay. Gotcha. So you, you justify yourself by the fact that no one's noticing that this is going on. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, so I think the reality of this is that as you guys are probably realizing we're just like Judah. It's not an out there problem. Sometimes we might want to make it. It's not that those people are over there ruining our world by themselves. Um, see, we all have the capacity for these atrocities. Like I said, we just draw the lines in different places. But if you had a strong enough fear or desire, have you ever thought about what, what you could possibly see yourself doing if taken out to the direst of circumstances. It reminds me of, I rarely quote movies, like it's kind of like a cliche that I try to steer clear, but I couldn't avoid it, so sorry, you'll have to, uh, you have to indulge me this one time. Um, if you guys remember in The Dark Knight, there's the Harvey Dent character, who early on in the movie, and there's a few different moments like this, there's like a one-liner. We were like, I think that's going to mean something at the end. I should probably like... like It's almost like too heavy-handed, like, okay, what's going to happen at the end? He just said that thing. Um, 
but he says this thing in the beginning that uh, is really descriptive. Um, not, not the full picture, but helps us understand or see this reality. And he says, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And it also reminds me of that line from Fight Club. If you guys, any of you guys are fans of Fight Club? Where he says, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate goes to zero. So it's sort of a very fatalistic viewpoint that like, well, shoot, we're, what are we going to do? Like, we're all headed down this terrible road. Like, we're all going to end up at some point becoming the villain if we're not there already. But that's just option one, right? That's just one way to live. That's not the full story. That's not the full picture of how we can live in a world, even when the world is unjust and perplexing at times and feels overwhelming to us. So the second way to live is the just soul living by faith. Verse 4 says, the righteous or the just, that word's kind of interchangeable in this passage as to how you would translate it, the righteous, the just, shall live by his faith. So rather than puffing yourself up to cope, rather than becoming hardened and self-reliant, doing whatever you need to get what you need, the just live by faith. So who are the just? It's important to know that. Um, Justice and righteousness, um, as we talked about a few weeks ago in one of the videos that Jeff shared, actually. Righteousness is all about our relationship to God and each other in terms of how we live. Like, how are we living And what does it say about God and each other and how we live? And justice is how well we are are doing that. There's justice when we are living to the standard of righteousness that God has set forth in creation and how he loves man and how he charges man to love each other and to love him. So that's ultimately this concept of justice and righteousness. So let's look at Habakkuk's arc over the course of the book. Because his stance dramatically changes through this dialogue that he's having with God. So he starts off railing, right? After he gets the answer to his question about how long the Lord... He says, how could you do this? he's, He's railing about how could you use men, these evil men, to swallow up men more righteous than them? But then by chapter 3, verse 2, he says something quite differently. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. See, he's no longer blinded by this point by the claims of the puffed up. This, he had to have immediately seen how thin his plea was that, but, but these, like, we're more righteous than them. Like, why would, why would you do this to us? He had to have seen almost immediately, as, the, as soon as the words came out of his mouth, how absurd that sounded when he was just crying out to God for justice against these men that he's now calling righteous. He now sees that the, the Judeans are deserving of this wrath that's coming against them, that it's just wrath. See, they've stopped at nothing to seek 
what they need in any and every situation. And it's continued to play out much the way it plays out for us. But then he turns and he says, I'm not, I'm not making any excuses. I'm not trying to pretend anything's true that's not true. God, just be merciful to us. Uh, and it reminds me of this parable um, that Jesus tells in Luke 18. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Which probably sounds a little bit like the puffed up soul. And treated others with contempt. See, two men went up in the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioner, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. And you could see this is a religious side of that, but you could very easily see the irreligious side of that. You could see him saying, God, I thank you that I don't need to beg for anything or I don't need to to do all the stuff to... um, to have enough money to live on. I thank you that you've given me all this wealth and, or that if I don't, I can actually take it and get it and do whatever I need. So there's sort of, you can sort of see multiple ways of living out this puffed up soul. Um, trusting in yourself as the Pharisee is in this parable that he was righteous. Righteous in the way that he was trying to, thought God wanted him to live. Puffed up. That he, that He's better off than others, and that was something to stake his claim, stake his trust in, his station in life. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He wouldn't even look at God because he was so aware. It's like when Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple. Um, Just this idea of being overwhelmed with the holiness and the greatness of God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I won't try to justify any of the things that I've done. This man went down to his house justified. See, this is the just man, the man who sees himself clearly, making no mistake about who he is and what he's done. He pleads for and receives mercy. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. This also resolves our attempts to justify ourselves, because then we don't need to go back and say, well, that thing that I did to my kids when I was more concerned with what I wanted I've already been forgiven for that. I don't need to try to tell you, God, why that's not a problem. I can actually go and ask for their forgiveness instead, and I don't need to save face anymore. It removes this need to justify ourselves when we react or try to cope with our fear. But that only solves half of it, and that only solves half of that pathway of reacting in fear than trying to justify the reaction. So now we don't have to justify anymore, but how do we escape this world we're still living in? Or how do we deal, rather, with this world that we're still living in and escape the fear? The just shall live by faith. So what is living by faith? What does that look like? Where the puffed-up soul is self-reliant, doing what they need to get what they want, 
Living by faith means resting the entirety of your being in His faithfulness. So in an unjust world, the only way to be free from intrinsic self-seeking is to know in the depths of your being that He has already taken care of you. As long as you feel any amount of need to take care of yourself, you will be yourself oppressed by this puffed up way of life. If he is providing for your needs, you'll actually be free to care about someone else's. You won't be bound up in your own. And if that's true, we can remind ourselves of this faithfulness when we're struggling in light of this dark and unjust and oppressive world. We can remind ourselves what's actually true about God. Instead of saying, God, you must not care, we can say, like Habakkuk does, are you not from everlasting? God, surely you know what you're doing because you're the only eternal one I could possibly appeal to. You are everlasting. We say, my God, you are my God. You're not a distant God. You're a personal God who cares about me. We say, my Holy One, Your ways are far better than my own, but you care about my needs. And you are my defender. You ultimately preserve me. Though the Babylonians are gnawing at my bones, you preserve, protect, and defend us. See, this isn't a blind or a mindless activity. It takes incredible discipline. See, with Habakkuk, it takes him two more chapters. After he's said all these things, he just reminded himself of all those traits about who God is in chapter 1. It's not until his poem, A Prayer to to God, in chapter 3, that he actually believes what he just said. So in chapter 3, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. Lord, I know what you're like. I believe it now. Lord, revive your work. Continue to be who you are. Continue to deliver your people. Um, Despite current circumstances, you haven't changed. You brought the Israelites. You have done all these things. As we did at Celebration Sunday a couple weeks ago, we can actually remind ourselves of all the times God has delivered us. And when we truly cling to Him, though trials will come, we won't lose heart. Jesus tells another parable in the same chapter of... uh, of Luke chapter 18 he said and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart so Jesus cares about our hearts he he's not asking us to just walk through this life and not think about how we're feeling or how it's affecting us he cares about your anguish so he said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. 
So despite our understanding, God is not delaying in his plan of justice. See, our timeline is flawed, but history consoles. When we look at history, we can, look, we can see violent regimes overturned. We can see God bringing his justice, but only in hindsight. Think of how many victims just in the last few weeks are seeing the beginnings of justice for the first time, are seeing something that they thought was going to be a secret that they would struggle under their entire life of this sexual sin that someone, someone abused them and, and mistreated them. Suddenly, we have the beginnings of justice for, for these, all of these women and some men. See, through the prophets, we see this big picture of God moving around governments, peoples, almost like figures on a chessboard uh, for his purposes to bring about his plan of justice and ultimately restoration of the whole world. And so this parable ends with a warning. It's sort of a sobering question for us. Knowing that God does not delay in bringing justice, knowing that we can trust him, knowing that he's faithful, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So friends, in how we live, are we missing out on the peace that we're offered through this faith? Are we settling for religious affiliation or some philosophical ideas or some academic thoughts that engage our minds when we think about what it means to be a Christian? But are we missing out completely on this peace that is offered to us? See, the litmus test for our faith becomes how we cry out to God. Do we really believe He's faithful to bring justice? And we should ask Him. The just shall live by faith. It's telling that Jesus gives these two parables, one about faith and one about the justified, right in succession, one after the other. First the persistent widow, then the Pharisee and the tax collector. These concepts are intrinsically linked. And this, this, this is echoed in Romans 1, where Habakkuk is quoted. For in it... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness is from faith for faith. So faith leads us to cry out for mercy to begin with. We can't do that apart from God giving us faith, from God revealing himself to us. Experiencing the depths of that mercy leads us deeper into faith. So faith makes us well as we cry out like the blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the one who feels intrinsically the depths of the mercy they've received is primed for faith and hope, no matter how uncertain the world seems. This is the life of the Christian. The opposite is also true, though. Until we see our own need for mercy we will not be able to have faith in an unjust world. It will overwhelm us. The default is the puffed-up self-reliance, which is what leads to the helpless feeling that sometimes we fall into. When we truly see God's merciful faithfulness towards us, 
we'll be able to believe it for the rest of the world, which is how we see, how we see Habakkuk in the end. Listen to these final words he has. I hear and my body trembles. My lip quivers at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. There's resolute, contented hope there. Though these Babylonians will continue to oppress us, I will quietly wait for you, Lord. I will wait for the day of the Lord. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. What he's saying here is, even if we have no food, even if the Babylonians take everything that we have, or there's a famine, or anything else happens that wipes out all of our food, I'll trust in you. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What he's saying here is, even if our entire farming industry collapses, even if we have no way to make money, even if the economy completely collapses and there's nothing, I'll trust in you. And then he ends, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And the other distinction I want to make that's a lie in popular culture is that faith is in action. Because that's not what we see here at all. Faith is not in action. Faith enables freedom from our fear to walk out what he's given us. When Jesus looked out at a world grieved, At the world, he grieved for it. Instead of fear, his faith drove him to obedience to the cross. The the results of that faith are life for us. And now, even when we fail in that faith, God is faithful. And we see Jesus pleading for us, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So when we fail to plead for mercy, Jesus is pleading for us. And he leads us He makes us tread on high places. He gives us a better reality to walk in. So as we finish up today, there's a few ways to respond. A few ways to respond in repentance specifically, where we say, God, I see what is true about you. I'm reminded, let me turn and walk out in a new way. And maybe we're overwhelmed by existential dread of just this overwhelming world we're walking in right now. And he's saying, come, receive faith, trust that I am faithful. Maybe you presume, still even after we've been talking, that you're the one righteous person in the wicked world. Never mind how you treat people who inconvenience you or get in your way. Come to him, receive mercy, you might extend it to others. Maybe you know he's faithful. You've received mercy from him. You know that's true. But you still find yourself gripped by this fear. Come to to him and receive boldness 
that you might tread on high places as he's leading you to. And now write this on tablets for all to see. As we remember earlier in the book, we await a day when all people for all time will finally and fully lay down their fearful labors and strivings founded on blood and iniquity and all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have come and you are coming. That you, your plan of justice is more complex than we understand and more faithful than we could hope. I pray that you would help us to depend on your faithfulness. To cry out to you. Say how long, O Lord. To cry out for the injustices that we feel Um, overwhelmed and helpless to solve and to wait for you, Lord. And in the meantime, to receive your mercy, to be transformed by your mercy in a way where we can continue to trust and we can extend that mercy to others as we walk out what you've given us, this new life in Jesus. We pray, amen.